Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But she's our guest, photographer Sarah Lee. Outside a rambling storefront window, cats meowed to the break of day. Me, I kept my mouth shut. To you, I had no words to say. My experience was limited and underfed. You were talking while I hid to the one who was the father of your kid. You probably didn't think I did, but I heard you say that love is just a four-letter word. Wow. <laughs> That's certainly the first time anyone's chosen that. Why did you choose that, Sarah? As I said to you before this, I'm most definitely not a Dylanologist. I don't know if that's the word. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love Dylan. It's a kind of daily part of life. And I listened a lot in the last few years to um, Joan Byers. And that's just a song that comes up on rotation a lot. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I wanted to include the lyric, Cats Meow to the Break of Day, because um, <laughs> it's just so playful and lovely. And also I like Don't Look Back is one of my formative learning about Dylan experiences. And, and at the time, I joined in the vague kind of sense as a sort of snotty student that they were laughing at Joan Byers and ha 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 and I felt very superior. I've watched it again as an enormous reverent Joan Byers fan and <laughs> seen her in the corner kind of practicing Love is just a four letter road and he hasn't written it yet so and yeah. I believe he's not recorded it. Never. And she says to him in the film, doesn't she? She said, you finished it about eight different ways and he's just lost interest and he's just moved on and he just let her record it. I don't think he's ever recorded it, no. When did you see it, uh, Don't Look Back? I first saw it when I was a student and I saw it in Coldplay's flat on Camden Road. Um, <laughs> all of us, genuinely, actually. So I was at UCL and happened to be there at the same time as them. And my flatmate is now a film director called Matt Whitecross, but then we were just all students in the 90s. And I lived on Royal College Street and Coldplay were just up the road on Camden Road. And I hung out with Matt a lot. He used to go and kind of hang out with them a lot. And we went round. I think Johnny, the guitarist, had it, the video player in his bedroom and about 10 of us were sitting on Johnny's bed watching it. Which was quite interesting because Chris was there as well and it was like their sort of tribe and I was... Had they seen it before? Or clearly I think they someone had. had seen it. No, they hadn't seen it. One of their friends had seen it. So a mutual friend, actually, probably mine. I think it was a guy called Jimmy D. Anyway, I think he had seen it and they were watching it. So there we are. That's a great picture. <laughs> that is a great picture. I have to just also say the phrase love is a four-letter word comes from, I don't know if everyone knows this, the film but not the play of Cat and Hot Tin Roof. The big scene, which is in the play as well, of Brick and Big Daddy, where they, they have it out. And Paul Newman and Burl Ives in the film. Burl Ives says, you know, don't, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, don't you understand? All I ever tried to do was love you. And he says, you don't know what love means. To you, it's just another four-letter word. I like wow. it even great. More. It's a great So it's line. another Bob Dylan uh, movie dialogue steal. Absolutely. From the early yeah, in, in, in the, the uh, in their tradition of that, yeah. But what did you make of the Dylan? So the first time you saw Don't Look Back, like I'm always interested in the first time people, that wasn't your first encounter with no, Dylan um, or first, Joan Baez. I mean, no, first encounter with Joan Baez, definitely. Dylan, uh, so my parents only listened to classical music and I kind of just had these big gaps. So lots of my peers, obviously they listened to the Beatles and Dylans and the Stones with their parents and I kind of never did and I found all those groups, which is kind of the bedrock of my musical taste, sort of in my mid-teens. And Dylan specifically, on holiday and in a kind of 14-year-old love triangle, me and a friend and a boy that we both liked, and he had the greatest hits and went, I think you'll like this. And I really did. So I had more of a chance because the other girl, who was very nice, was not so into this. So <laughs> there we are. And from that, I liked I Want You was my favourite on that. But I remembered, so that was my in. I listened to that and I thought it sounded great. And did you have lots of other friends or did, that listened to this or was it a kind of no, solitary pursuit? kind of, it wasn't particularly, no. I mean, I went to a girls' boarding school at the time. Dylan hadn't, wasn't really kind of a big thing. And also, you didn't have the internet or Spotify, and if you weren't a completist, and I also didn't have like time to go to record stores and stuff, you know, I would buy a cassette, and I think the greatest hit seems like a good start because it's mm. got some of the best songs on it. I mean, as I thought, yeah. when I went to university, Dylan was big, definitely. Lots of my friends had albums. You'd share albums, listen to albums. I mentioned my sort of flatmate at university, Matt. 
he had a load of Dylan and he had kind of bootleg tapes and he'd be like, listen to this, you'll love this. In that kind of yeah. more, for want of a better word, collegiate way of sharing music and being excited. And also you're just discovering life and your taste and books and cinema and yeah. everything. And Dylan was like a big part of that. It was part of that kind of who am I as like a very new adult. It fits with a kind of, you know, someone in their 20s, doesn't it? Un uncovering theories about life and, and, and what these things... Even that scene in Don't Look Back where he's berating the, the science student, you know, and talking about the nature of friendship. Yeah. I remember watching that as a 20-something student and thinking, oh, is this, is this what friendship means? Is this how the world operates? You know, you learn as you discover him and his personality and his output, don't you? I don't think I ever saw him, though, as a kind of marker on how no, to sure. treat the world or other people. <laughs> no, that's I'm not sure enough. I watched Don't Look Back and thought, ah, <laughs> yeah. that's the way that's to be. That's how you treat women, yeah. <laughs> have, you, have you seen it recently? Because I'm wondering, because I, I know, you know, your thing about being a portrait photographer and, say, at the BAFTAs, sort yeah. of, you know, being invisible. And actually what's happening and don't look back. I'm wondering if you've heard, if you've... So, yeah, yeah, I watched it as a... Yes, I mean, I kind of, for me watching it, funnily enough, I've got a terrible memory, so you guys are obviously much better informed, but I watched it as a student, maybe again as a student, I can't remember, but I watched it about two years ago, mm -hmm. and actually my husband had never seen it, and it, I was like, lockdown, all you've got <laughs> yeah. are classic films, and but it's this historical document of Britain at that time. Mm. That's as interesting to me and it's shot really well and I love the intimacy and the documentary and the rawness of it and this sense of what I love the scene with the, the lady mayoress or the yes. kind of I yeah. mean it, it, it in parallel this kind of incredibly cool space alien Dylan seems to be I mean at who never looked better or, or yeah I think there are all sorts of interesting periods but just mm. visually I mean, he's extraordinary. And, like, the contrast with that and grotty, damp, sooty, damp, cold England. <laughs> and then this kind of sort of magician sort of is... That's part of the thrill of watching Don't Look Back. Yeah. Do you think that... I mean, Dylan at that time was sort of that extremely famous top of his mm -hmm. game. And there's this guy following him around with a pretty big, you know, movie camera. Like now you could follow him around with an iPhone and, and you, you wouldn't yeah. be noticed. Or indeed a Leica maybe. But uh, he was able to block out. Like he was surprised, I know, afterwards that it was so intimate. It was edited in such an intimate way. He felt it was too intimate. You know, he, yeah. he hated it. Um, he hated Don't but Look Back. But he always hates. I mean, I'm not an expert, but yeah. I, that's a ongoing theme isn't it that he's not yeah and he feels he's been betrayed and because filming and photography are like trying to put lightning in a bottle and but, uh, but that tension you, is exciting but because you you're used to being in a you know at the baftas you, yeah you've been photographer there for for how many years i don't know um nine years nine years wow. so yeah. you must be used to being in a, a room full of really famous people who know they're being photographed but Presumably, there's something about when you're super famous and you're used to being photographed all the time that you don't. I mean, have you ever had somebody turn to you when you're taking, you know, the, the, we've seen the photographs that are all available on your website and they're, they're <laughs> fabulous. But anyone turn to you and, you know, just put their hand out and um, like, don't come near me. Very, very rarely. So something, I mean, there is as a photographer, you watch something like Don't Look Back and think, I mean, I feel like I came in at the end of the game with photography and the, the style that I like doing you now, I mean, for goodness sake, people, you know, they manage their own, inverted commas, images with their social media. Before that, you know, mm. the rise of the PR, the, the kind of distances. And also everyone's much more savvy about what an image is. People have cameras. It's not this kind of, you know, the era of don't look back. What Pennymark is doing is remarkable. Mm. And subjects, everyone in those rooms is less aware of what's going on, the possibility of what it could be that he was doing. Whereas if I'm in a room... People are pretty savvy, everyone, your average Joe and certainly to your kind of movie star, film actor or whatever at the BAFTAs. And the BAFTAs are a straight... I mean, I love it because it's consent. I'm there, BAFTA have given me the nod. So mm. everyone, pretty much, the very, very rare exceptions. And sometimes that's when a person is nervous. They don't know me as a photographer and they don't know if they can trust that I'm going to put out an image that doesn't undermine them in some way and that's not really what I mean I'm not I'm not there to be a flatterer but I'm not also looking to stitch anyone up so very occasionally so there was an actress who's um 
was in an area where they do makeup touch-ups and she was like oh do you mind and I, I didn't wasn't about to take a picture wasn't going to but I was the light was great and I was waiting and actually she saw what I was doing later and went oh I'm sorry no no these are great ignore me so it's a very friendly space in that respect because you've had the nod from after people know that I'm kind of roaming and and I'm in really good company that you know they have a handful I'm not the only photographer and it's people like Greg Williams and you know Charlie Clifton people you know Hopefully, mm. people trust you because BAFTA trusted there, you. There was one, I mean, looking at, at your website, there, there's that thing, uh, sequence of photos of uh, Tom Hiddleston and Idris Elba yeah. meeting and doing a kind of a weird It was dance. when all that Bond, who is going to yes. be Bond stuff was going on. And I thought that was particularly interesting because I, there, it seemed to me that there was a lot of tension. Kind of, well... Man-actor man tension between them. <laughs> I, yes. I'm not their psychiatrist. I mean, I, I didn't, I mean, interpret the photos as you will. I mean, that's my favourite bit of, I mean, this is not very Dylan-y, but if you're shooting behind the scenes and they're very nice, I get to be a fly on the wall at BAFTAs. I mean, it's a real kind of dream of access of a kind, actually, that is the sort I would watch, don't look back and feel, nost think, not nostalgic, I wasn't born, but just think, I wish that I was doing what I do now in a slightly different world, um, access-wise. But when people are off the red carpet and they've gone past all the camera interviews, at the end there's a kind of wall of press and entertainment photographers doing shots in front of the branding and what people are wearing. There's lots of fans. Most people spend you know, half an hour, 40 minutes on the red carpet shaking hands, doing selfies. Mm. All of that's a huge amount of kind of literal and figurative noise. Then people get into the auditorium and it's... I love it. There's normally just me and maybe one other photographer. People don't aren't really aware you're there. I like just trying to be as invisible as possible. Mm. But you basically, in the stalls of, now it's the Festival Hall, but it's been the Albert Hall, the Royal Opera House, it's rammed full of incredibly interesting people dressed to the nines. And there's about a 20-minute gap where there's no... The show hasn't started. The recording hasn't started. Mm. And it reminds me a bit of people all on a school bus or something because you get the <laughs> oddest connections because, you know, it's an industry thing. So you'll get Brian Cox suddenly talking to Jamie Lee Curtis and they met once before and they haven't seen each other in years mm. and they're suddenly those kind of moments. Or So with that, Idris Elba, Tom Hiddleston, I was sort of prowling around and you'd see great unlikely pairings because it's people who might have worked on a project together years ago or they've met in a different context mm. and then they're thrilled to see each other and chatting. And they're not really aware of me, but you get genuine intimacy as opposed to it's my job to portray a certain kind of warm intimacy in front of a thousand cameras. I can't wait mm. till this is over and I can go home. Slightly in that auditorium, it's genuine intimacy, and I love that. Mm. I was sneaking around, and I can't remember, probably Tom Hiddleston saw me first. He's very aware and always makes quite an effort to be terribly charming and uh, all the rest of it, as you would expect. And I think Idris Elba was walking past, and I clocked him. And I think them pretending to fight, that wouldn't have been... I'm not that kind of photographer. I'd never go, could you fight for the camera? Pretend your body... Yeah. They started joshing with each other, and I was laughing, obviously. I can't remember the exact moment. My guess would be that I was smiling and laughing. Yeah, I well, it was, was great. great. It was and great then they series, acted but... up to the audience. And the people around, all of whom, because you're in the stalls, would be sort of either BAFTA bigwigs or film industry or other actors and directors, were kind of amused. Oh, I'm glad you like it. Yeah. And that fits with you know what you were saying about um, your photograph of Austin Butler and Kate Blanchett. You know, that must, I would love oh, to hear what they were talking about. You know, well, Elvis that, and Dylan. That's actually a really nice moment because, again, that's right backstage, which I love, which is Austin Butler had just come off stage after getting Best Actor. Oh, really? And Kate Blanchett had just either presented it or she was backstage because she'd been, she had already won Best Actress 10 minutes before and had been yeah. doing an interview in a press, you know, what, all the stuff because you win and then you get swept into, there's official mm. portraits, there's radio interviews, press, you know, all this stuff. I think it was right at the end of the show. And what happens at the end is they do a winner's portrait of everyone who's won. So instead of Kate Blanchett, who won for Tar, being swept away for the whole press bit, I think they would have kept her there so that they could all go back on stage immediately after the last. So I think right. the 
penultimate award is best actor, then it's best film, then it's the end. So they're in this kind of... And you had the in the background of that photo, there are the guys from All Quiet on the Western Front. It was really lovely because the, they were sort of unaware of being photographed, I think, actually. There are times when you're an actor. I mean, you know, you know people know that I'm there. I know that they know I'm there, but they're choosing to sort of give me the intimate, nice shot. Yeah. With this... They were really in it. They just won. They were very hyped up. And it was really lovely. Austin Butler was being very, very respectful to Kate Blanchett. And she was really thrilled for him. And they would, it was just a nice moment because they had that energy and you can absolutely between see that. them. You can yeah. see this mutual admiration. Yeah. And it was really yeah. lovely. And they weren't. And because actually there weren't lots of photographers or press people. I was there and I'm just sort of, I just try and, if I could get a, obviously, if a genie came and gave me three wishes, I think. Obviously, you know, world peace and mm. an end to hunger and cancer probably would choose invisibility as well. It would make my job. <laughs> yeah, right. It would be a joy. But, yeah, that kind of moment was real. Yeah. Um, not... Have you ever been, it just occurred to me, have you ever been asked to do a cover of an album? Or have um, you done a cover of I, an album? I've done inner portraits, inner sleeve portraits. I don't think I have had anything on a cover. Maybe. I shot actually maybe one of the cover of Coldplay's Milo. I don't know how you pronounce it, Zilotto or Zilotto. I shot a lot of the graffiti that's used, and they. I don't know if it. I actually don't know on the cover if that's one of my shots. It is my shot of them inside the cover, and that was the first pictures I ever sold were the inner sleeve portraits of Coldplay for parachutes. So, but was that commissioned or was that something that no, you were doing anyway? No, it was just I happened anyway? to be around them. The first time they ever had a photographer at a gig, it was me. And afterwards, they were saying, kind of, oh, we saw there was a photographer there, but then they looked disappointed because it was only me. <laughs> <laughs> so not a real photographer. It, anyway. But I'm just thinking about the pressure that there must be. I mean, you have an experience that, uh, to, to actually do a cover photo. I mean, and particularly those guys who did the covers for Dylan albums back in the day. You know, where it's like you're going to do the cover of the new Bob Dylan album. But any shoot has a kind of real pressure. But also because stuff, there would be other options. Like I know, oh, I had the cover recently of Jessie Norman, but she's died a, I kind of guess, it can't, I'm sure a Decca haven't called it a greatest hits, but <laughs> something like that. And that was a portrait of her. Decca got in touch about a year ago. And can we use this for a cover? So there you are. I have. But that was a shot. And that was terrifying because... She's a literal, was a literal diva with the large and the small D in diva. That was about a 40 second shoot at the VNA <laughs> because she stormed off very angrily oh, with everyone, God. not just with me, but with the whole thing. And the fact that that tiny shoot turned into a cover of one of her albums really. So why was it at the VNA? I can't remember. I have no idea why I mean, it was at the VNA. Was, it was, was, back, it, was no, there it was, something set up so that there no, was No, it was in a it was in some little back room at the VNA. And was she wearing some great gown or yeah, something? Yeah, she was she had kind of a red covering on her head and a sort of she looked amazing. I mean she's an extraordinarily beautiful woman with the huge presence kind of befitting her talent. Mm. But yeah, it was I just remember her head of press looking like he wanted to cry. The journalist who was lovely and not in any way offending her, but she was offended. And then the shoot was in a corridor, <laughs> natural light, which I don't think she was that thrilled about. But it worked. I like pressure, actually. I, any job you do, for any client, actually, be it the cover of an album or a magazine or accompanying a something or for whatever it is, I think if you lose nerves... That's probably not good. I'm always terrified because I think I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to be found out as a fraud. Anything could go wrong. That kind of tension is part of what makes the job work. And it's about capturing seconds, isn't it? Whether it's Dylan out of focus on Blonde on Blonde or Time Out of Mind. I think they're both blurry. Yeah. Um, or the Beatles crossing Abbey Road. I think they, they walked across that crossing four times. I, I mean, I wonder with the Dylan photographic covers, I don't know the answer to this and you might. I don't know if was it a concept that they went? Look, we Dylan would shows on for blonde on blonde. Dylan, there are a lot of well composed, yeah, you know, really tight, beautifully focused ones. He chose the. But 
he didn't say this is the concept before. So there was a shoot, oh, no, and then Dylan. I, it looks to me like there's kind of been a freehand of him going, "This is what I want." Well, all I know about that cover is in the meatpacking district of uh, New York, and it was so cold that the photographer was shivering, and apparently that's why it's blurred for Blonde on Blonde. Nothing wrong with camera. Well, absolutely. <laughs> but you know, well, he clearly up. he clearly had no problem. With that, and as I say, Time Out of Mind is also blurry. The inner photograph on Time Out of Mind But I wonder if they commissioned shoots and then he went with... So there was a kind of vaguer idea of what they might like. Meatpacking district, I'll be wearing this, rather than... So something like I, I know. know um, I don't think I've never read any. I'm, I think we've read about that that shoot. You know, mm. it's been documented. The was it Jerry Schatzberg? I think so. Who he, he's been interviewed. Yeah. You know, he's been living on those photographs, and it, there was no concept other than yeah, Dylan was, uh, Meatpacking District. Cold. That sounds great because that's like an editorial shoot. That's just okay, and that's sort of my favorite because I've worked with the Guardian a lot, and there's just no budgets to go. And actually, some photographers. It is their brilliance that they can see a shot, have you know, obviously that suits the subject, but they have the lighting, the composition in mind. Then they create the shot, and that is wholly legitimate. And you know, obviously, some of the greatest, greatest photographers who've ever lived work that way. Yeah, I definitely spent a lot of my career just feeling hopelessly depressed because I, like, I can't do that. But actually, it's not in me. It's not how I work. It's not what interests me. I like, I like that sort of. As most of my portrait shoots go, you've got a time, a place, ideally some time, but often it can be. You've got 20 minutes and no mm-hmm. control over the environment. And then you have to get something that hopefully will really stand. Any photographer goes, yeah, I've made a picture. And that's, I love making something and pulling the composition and finding it. Mm. So what you're describing, presumably Dylan chose what he was going to wear. They chose a location and a photographer. Mm then the rest of it comes from what they do together and then he yeah. obviously... I mean, the most... The thing you were describing the, the, uh, of the Dylan albums, at least uh, thinking about it right now, the, the most like that was uh, the John Wesley Harding photo. Yeah. Because as far as I understand, they were just hanging around in Albert Grossman's kitchen and uh, the photographer was there and it was freezing cold and sort of like, oh God, well, I guess we, we need to get this photo done so they went outside and these these people uh the other people on the cover yeah. were albert grossman's guests they were recording they said yeah hey, bring them bring them in the photo as well and there's some guy who is a stonemason mm. who is who's the other That's guy great. in the picture and yeah. it was a polaroid it was just like a, a little a polaroid and then they went inside and squinting at the, the polaroid sun, around that winter sunlight yeah yeah, yeah. That, yeah and that was but it's great but also it's right because presumably someone's as kind of mercurial and changes in the way dylan does at the right time, it's of the right feel. It works. I mean, I think there are different. And then, but then you've got something. I watched a brilliant documentary, which I've now forgotten who made it, about the kind of high point of cover art and maybe real high concept stuff started mm. a bit later. Yeah, you know, there's sort of when you've got kind of um, Storm Thorgerson and mm, yeah, and well, exactly. Yeah, those are concepts. So yeah, yeah. the wish you were here and oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah, and then uh, just yeah. Yeah, diving yeah. into. That's high concept. Sure. Yeah. I can't imagine... No. So you're delivering on a concept shooting that. Mm. Or, um, and it's heavy-handed in a way that Dylan would never, ever yeah, entertain. I, know, I, I don't know. I think it's, but, I mean, different, it's, it's a different... I don't think it's heavy-handed. Well, I think no, it's, it's too, different. It's, it's, it's heavy-handed for him, isn't it? He yeah, wouldn't, I don't he think it would work that. for Dylan. But no. he did try... I mean, there's a few mystifying... More than a few. There's a lot of mystifying Dylan cover choices. Uh, like uh, Tempest. Basically, there, there's a kind of a classical... A statue of a some sort of woman in the background. It's sort of a red mist in front of it. Luke's looking it up now. Ooh, it's horrible. Yikes! Like, what does that mean? Mm. What does it say? It's sort of, it's it ugly and dumb. And I suppose uh, isn't that? I mean, with photography, there are very different ways of doing things. And obviously, what we've been sort of describing about how you would do a shoot for a cover if it's high concept or if you're just commissioning a shoot and seeing, making, yeah, make your own luck, make the magic yourself, yeah, by trusting mm. the photographer and the environment. All of photography, I would say, it's about emotional engagement. That's what you're trying to achieve. Mm. Albeit in whichever method you use, whether you use colour, black and white, whether you're a studio-based, whether you're high concept, whether you're reportage, and all Photographers have different ways of doing things, mm. you know, like any music, any artist. But for me, if I'm composing or doing a shoot for myself or of you, all the choices I make, and often those are just very quick and they're not 
they're almost subconscious thinking about light, composition, tone, the choice when you press the shutter. Mm. All of that is in service of the picture. But essentially, I'm thinking, one, will this be impactful? Can it create an emotional connection? And for me, you know, I I like to try and get something that feels honest, that feels real. But there are different, you know, there are pictures that are huge, all about artifice and not about honesty, but they move you. Yeah, as with any painting or piece of music, I think that Tempest cover slightly fails. But that's what you're trying to do. And there are different ways of getting to the same point. And presumably you're selling an album. It's got to have that engagement. And, but you're and also, I think, articulating what, what Dylan seems to feel about his own music, in that these are moments captured that need to resonate. Life determines they'll never be the same way twice. They're shot through with, with something that an audience finds resonant. But sometimes yeah. he he picks things like that. Looks like a library photograph or something from the Tempest. What era is that from? <clears throat> Tempest is twenty twelve. Then there's uh, Modern Times, which I think is an album that yeah. you uh, you know pretty well. Well, the, the cover of Modern Times. Yes, but I, know, I, th- I, love I the think cover that's too. a great cover. I mean, that really does. I think it's fantastic. Sneak. Yeah. Also, I don't know how involved is Dylan's hand on this as as tight a grip as it was earlier in his career, because the music industry has changed. There are now more people, designers, the structure about putting an album out and its publicity campaign. And da, da, da. Yeah. This has changed quite a lot since since the freewheeling Bob Dylan. Well, yeah. we, ought to, we ought to credit the photographer as Ted Kroner's photograph, Taxi New York at Night from 1947. It's fantastic. So I think, but I do think, uh, we've asked around anyway, because we've had, We've talked to people who have, you know, been to the Dylan office and, you know, yeah. worked with the Dylan office people. And we've asked, and Dylan does sign off on okay. pretty much everything. But it's interesting because these are one, that one doesn't have him on. Most of his covers do, because a lot of artists, their covers never have them on. Mm. Dylan, yeah, I don't know what the percentages are, but. Well, I certainly love there this hasn't cover. been a new one of Dylan's since just love recently. That. Oh, another self portrait. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, just look through them. And which ones, which ones grab okay. you? Oh, Sarah is flipping through the Dylan. I, Elliot Landy is the um, mm. yes. I, Nashville skyline. Yeah. Well, well Nashville right. skyline's interesting because it, Blonde on Blonde, John Wesley Harding, Nashville skyline. They're never thought of as a trilogy of albums, those, but they are chronologically linked. Are they not? They're all recorded in Nashville, and he's wearing the same well, jacket so on the cover of all three. Those are the three that I listened to a lot mm. as a student, and I, I, I think actually. When I was when I was discovering this new band I'd never heard of, the Beatles, aged about fourteen, I remember I started. I bought the album Help, and then I kind of just, as I had enough pocket money to do it, bought all the albums, kind of chronologically through. Mm. Oh my goodness, this is amazing! And I think as a student, I started trying to do something similar with Dylan, and then gave up a bit when I realised I just didn't have the budget to go much further. (laughs) But. I listened to those three a lot. I think I must have bought them concurrently yeah. and listened to them a lot. The, 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 the Brown Jacket trilogy. What about the early stuff? Well, like the, the early stuff, he was much more hands-on, presumably. I don't know. There were you, I, almost one of the most iconic covers of all time is the freewheeling yeah. Bob Dylan. I yeah. mean, I, it's almost not mentioning it. Though I do like Highway 61 Revisited. It's the, the stripes ooh, and the... Um, well, the, there's actually a the camera. camera in the background. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, freewheeling, I mean, we should mention again, he's freezing cold. Again, he's in New York. He's wearing a jacket which is not nearly warm enough. And Susie Rotolo said, you know, he could have worn a warmer jacket, but it's part of the look he wanted. Yeah. And it now now that I've sort of seen it, I can't unsee it. It reminds me of those photographs of James Dean in Times Square course, where yeah, he's yeah. got his, you know, but never occurred would... to me for years that, but doesn't matter. Sure, I mean, sure again, it, could, I, it would have occurred to him. Of course it would. I don't, I've never met Bob Dylan. I've photographer friend who has and a filmmaker friend who has and both of them reported he's extremely conscious of his appearance and his image i don't think any of this is accidental i mean how can it be how can you look at the kind of the don't look back bob and think that this is just he grabbed the first thing off his closet floor as he was leaving that i mean this is yeah this is it's like ziggy stardust i mean it's so deliberate and the choices for these albums. And it, there's a kind of genius in it, I think, that mm-hmm. it works. I mean, I, I do love Highway 61, that silky, paisley blue shirt with yeah. the motorbike T-shirt. It's... I remember when I bought Highway 61 in, in our price in Putney High Street in the early 90s, in the days when guys in record stores used to chat to you as they were kind of taking yeah. your money. And he just looked at it and went, uh, it's never occurred to me how much like Bowie he looks in that picture. And I thought, yeah, actually, I'll, I'll go with that. You mean Bowie looks like him? Yeah. 
Yeah, because it was. Yeah, but I mean, the the guy in the in the record shop was yeah. a Bowie fan, so he was seeing it that way around. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he's wearing that Triumph motorcycle T-shirt. Was it? I can't remember in which press conference. There's some press conference. December '65. Okay, thank you, Lee. <laughs> and and where this guy says, "So what's what's with the Triumph motorcycle T-shirt?" And uh, and Dylan says, "Well, what do you mean?" And and he says, uh, "Well, you know, you you know, it's the motorcycle, is it, or is it the Triumph thing? Is that what you were trying to tell us?" And he says, "Well, I just like motorcycles. Doesn't everybody really like motorcycles?" Mm. And but as you as you said, you know, he knew what he was doing when he put. But that also, it looks on. good. It, well, yeah, because I, mean, exactly. I don't. Does it? I mean, that's the thing of deciphering the symbols. Sometimes it just is what it is. It's taste. It's judgment. And Triumph and Motorcycle has... is Brando as well in the wild yeah, one. Yeah, but you it's know, also, that... isn't it just also something just... lighter than that? It's just superb taste and judgment. Yeah. But it also time, looks great. It doesn't need to be put into, yeah, into exactly. words. But it also, it, it's set off by the shirt, isn't it? I mean, if he was yeah. just wearing the T-shirt, that would be a whole different look. But wearing that, you know, somewhat psychedelic, draped, it's kind of mysterious shirt it with good. it. I think it looks great. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it could be. I mean, I would prefer to think in terms of just my admiration for him that it's just judgment and taste. It doesn't even, <laughs> it's like he knows that works and it works and why it works. It doesn't need Christopher Ricks to write sort of you know, <laughs> 4,000 words on it. I mean, it really doesn't. It's just yeah, taste yeah. and judgment. And yeah, as yeah. you know, the, the whole reason everyone's here, he, he had it in kind of bucket loads. A little throwaway comment there, but have you ever gone deep on the sort of the books, the kind of the academia? No, I mean, that's why I was terrified to be asked to do this because um, I did English at UCL. There was a professor called Danny Carlin who was very into and who I think, if I remember rightly, I think knew Christopher Ricks and was always trying to get Dylan on the syllabus and other academics were rather sniffy about this in the mid-90s. And there was a real... I just never went there. No, I think maybe I was intimidated, actually, and I thought it might turn into homework. Well, I would I would say broadly speaking, I and I apologise to any academic um, friends or otherwise listen to this, but I think the purpose of academia is to intimidate people, frankly. <laughs> but not that the academics... They'd hate not, to think that, but, yeah. you know, that's how the rest of us feel. I don't I don't think Professor Carlin was intimidating, but it was the, the subject, the notion that mm. there was this... There were people who really... I liked Bob Dylan, but there were people who really, really understood... And I think there are, because yeah. there's so much there. How could you not? I think it's wholly yeah. legitimate. It's just not for me. But that still exists now. That you know, that, I mean, I, you know, Dylan. We were talking about this on the way in. Dylan seems to still be talked about by so many, and I know we are two of them. You know, <laughs> aging white balding men. What's the balding guy today? <laughs> we just you both happen to be balding. All right, all right. There are, there are lots of aged white men with lots of hair who like Bob Dylan too. But you know, it, the more that goes on, the more it kind of self perpetuates. The but it, it both is logistic. Well, it seems to me both things are kind of great. That I don't know him. I just know this sort of. I think of him as the sort of slightly the Wizard in the Wizard of Oz, so unknowable in some. Well, no, but apart yeah. from that, Wizard was revealed to be rather kind of um, pathetic and that is not so I, I stopped the analogy there that's terrible not pathetic if the wizard was revealed to be Bob Dylan and amazing then then that but the unknowableness is what I meant yeah but I imagine he might be rather knocked if people stopped looking for symbols and meaning you can't produce a kind of prodigious kind of that would be uh, that'd be a good comedy over. sketch I think Bob Dylan walks into the room and you know does something and nobody reacts in any yeah, way there's a whole load, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a whole load of kind of very music literate as you say kind of um Middle-aged men, and they're yeah. just indifferent. All I the think Grateful that would Dead be... fans don't care about all the songs he sang in Japan. Like, yeah, well, no, yeah it, would, exactly. it would be it would be death. <laughs> yeah, but then also, the things that are brilliant often, you know, they exist in they're more than one thing, mm. and your enjoyment and interpretation. I mean, I love the language and I love the illusions, but I've got no personally. I don't want to dive deep and to unpick every meaning. I like being delighted and thrilled when there's ones I hear or references. But I also like having a kind of personally that lightness of just enjoying the brilliance as I see it. I, well, again, uh, that's quite a photographic notion to look at a photograph and have a gut reaction on your first perception of it, your first yeah. reactions to it. You know, and there's some art you do stand and you look at forever and you uncover hidden meanings. But some you just like the way it makes you feel when you first see it. And getting back to that is very, very hard. Yeah, very. I mean, I, it doesn't strike me as hard with. It's always so enjoyable, actually. Mm. I think, I don't know, but then people, the way people are fans is different. And I, I, I'm not a strong advocate for one side or the other. I have my way, but I don't think it's better than anyone else's. I mean, I, I quite like letting it kind of wash past me and just mm. really enjoying that it exists and 
I think John Lennon said the same thing when Dylan was trying to get Lennon into sort of analysing his lyrics and things and sort of being more careful about his lyrics. And he'd say, listen to this song, I want you to listen to the lyrics. And Lennon allegedly said, I can't be bothered. I just like the way it makes me feel. But then was he being honest? I don't know. Well, the two of them together. And like, That's a loaded relationship, yeah, isn't it? Ginormous egos as well. Who knows? But when we, when we were um, communicating by email before this, you were talking about how you love Dylan cover versions, as we, yeah. I think, most right-thinking Dylan people do. And you mentioned Miriam Williams' cover of uh, I Should Be Released, which I hadn't heard You know, I've been uh, listening before. to it obsessively this and, month. That's well, why I mentioned I it. have now. Yeah, yeah we all have now. It's, just it's astonishing, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. so good. And that album that, that it starts is fantastic. Yeah. I just loved it. I find I've got a terrible, I'm dyslexic and have kind of a short attention span and my memory is bad. So I always, things that are right in front of me I know about and then I forget things. But at the moment, Marion Williams is big. But, uh, yeah, buyers, um, loads of, I saw the Cat Power gig at the Albert Did you? Hall. You That's there. Yeah. I wanted to oh. ask you this, yes. Oh, and a friend um, was reviewing it and had a plus one and was like, do you fancy this? And Yes, I really, really do. So it was, yeah. So tell us about that, because I, I wasn't you sure. Weren't that, did you go? Or? We didn't. We didn't. So, yeah. I I like Cat Power anyway, yeah. and it was just magic. It was so up my street. There was, yeah, some kind of Burke shouted Judas at the wrong point. And oh. I was just like... You shocked me. Predictably yeah. enough. Oh, no, no, but yeah. anyway... But, but first of all, um, if, for people who don't know, it was a recreation of the... Yeah. The Manchester Free Trade, Free Trade Hall. Hall concert, yeah, yeah with the same... Same set list and... In, and in I kind way. of loved it. I, I've not seen Cat Power live before, so I don't know how she normally is, but she barely was lit. Obviously her own choice. I mean, she was sort of heavy-shadowed... So it wasn't her, it was just her fantastic voice. And it felt like a sort of, um, I love that kind of witchcraft of recreating a feeling. You say, some people listen to Dylan and just go, well, you know, John Lennon, I just like the way it makes me feel. What a privilege to hear live just, it was being played straight. And it had enough kind of movement in it that it wasn't a sort of nebbish recreation. Mm. You know, it wasn't on, I don't know, the equivalent of period instruments has to be I, I guess it had a you know, a bit of it sounded cat powery, but it, it was amazing and it was so thrilling. My I'm a sound pompous, but the first reaction when it did the shift is that it kind of moved from the sacred to the profane in mm. such a thrilling way, and you got it. You know, I don't go deep on Dylanology, but you know, everyone's read about the reaction and the mm. what a thing. And also, if you like Joan Byers, I know about her reaction to it. And you did, you know, obviously it's not going to shock you to your core in 2023, mm. but you got it after sitting there and listening to this kind of amazing beauty and then the shift as the and the sound and the noise as the kind of band kicks in, properly plugged in. Mm. It was really thrilling. If she does it again, do go. Mm. We should, we really should. It's, it, it was church-like. Actually, mm. not a person got up to get a drink or, you know, it's a music concert. People mm. do. Even at the Albert Hall, there's a kind of people chat sure. between numbers. Yeah. Mm. It was almost pin-drop quiet for the first half. I and, guess it may have come from her because I read in, in interviews with her beforehand yeah. where she said, I have never been so nervous. I've bitten off this thing. I think she, I think she nailed it. I wonder if that's that she pulled herself back as an artist and performer. It's an odd choice to not be lit, you know, because mm. it's her. She's in the Dylan position. So they didn't bring up the lights for the electric... Uh... They did a little, but I just noticed... I was just thinking... I wasn't shooting him, but I was thinking if I was shooting this, it would be a struggle because she's choosing to not be spotlit. She was lit with quite heavy shadows from above. I mean, there were moments where she moved into light, but not much given... It's not an ensemble thing. It, it's cat power being Dylan, you know, mm -hmm. and she stepped back and maybe that was nerves. But it, it was really thrilling is the word, yeah, definitely. And was there any, did she chat at all? Not so as you'd notice, maybe a tiny bit. I mean, maybe, I can't remember. Yeah, mm. don't, someone listening to this will have been there and will know all about it and be cross that I'm getting it wrong. So It's interesting you say from the sacred to the profane because I've never listened to all the shows from that tour because I'm that kind of person and... It is astonishing how it goes from this, not all of them, they're all different, but, but it goes from this like church-like reverence of these seven-minute songs. You know, many of them have never been heard. Yeah. I mean, you know, to listen to Visions of Johanna for the first for time. The first time. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Or that one about the gum, you know, fourth time around. And they just haven't got a clue. And they're just elliptical, strange, long songs, just like a woman, you know. And then it gets ugly. The sound gets turned up. 
as you see from the, the footage of those fans, they're saying it's this terribly corny group. That's one thing they're not, it's corny. <laughs> not corny. And that's the, the thing. I mean, when the, when the Manchester Free Trade Hall gig was finally mixed for release in the mid-90s, Dylan stopped the release because he reportedly thought the mix sounded too clean. Wow. And the version they put out is a lot messier, a lot noisier, because it needs to be. Yeah, but it, it's great. Yeah. That, and that's the kind of, and, you know, I'm not a musician either at all, so I just know how it sounds and how it makes me feel. It's but the, matters, it's yeah. dirty. Yeah, exactly. Electric guitars are dirty and mm. scuzzy, and they talk. Whatever music does, it reaches yeah. in in some very hard-to-qualify, quantify way, it's doing something different. And then you really got the strong sense at the cat power thing of what Dylan must have been doing with both halves of those sets. They're making people feel in a very different way. Mm. And that clash, and it's exciting that it upset people, but also, and maybe it was never going to upset anyone who goes to the cat power recreation in 2023. No. no one's going to be upset. <laughs> but I don't know. I imagine I might have been thrilled if I'd heard it back in the day. Because he's so... But you can tell, even in the early times of changing three-wheeling, he's not your average folk singer. He's always unexpected. There's mm. something so impish about yeah, him. They yeah, they talk about yeah. him being Chaplin-esque. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was a word that was used by, I guess, maybe it was used in one of the early uh, reviews, um, uh, but, but it, it kept being attached to him. And when we had we had the actor Ken, Ken Cranamon, who, who'd been, who was at the Royal, Royal Festival Hall concert in... 64. Thank you, Luke. Um, <coughs> and, the 17th. And, <laughs> and he said, you know, sort of unbidden, he said he was so sort of Chaplin-esque and funny, like he had us in stitches for about the first half hour. And he was doing his stuff that we knew, the first, yeah. like, th three albums. And then he did, uh, he played Mr. Tambourine Man for the first time, certainly in this country. And people were like, what's going on? <laughs> you know, it was the same thing. I think that uh, what happened at the Free Trade Hall was, or a lot of Dylan, to me, is frightens people. And I think people were frightened. They, they, that's why they said the band were corny, because they they were just scared. There was something. It was the future, you know. It was something that that came in and and shook them, and they didn't really understand. And I think that I think a lot of it was a what response to that. I, I don't know enough, but how much, how prevailing was that, or were there just some loud voices being well, frightened and depressed? Because there we, must have been other people who were there just going, oh, "Yes, this I'm is here great." For this. No, yeah. well. It's hard for us to understand now. Is Michael Gray, uh, the, the, he's written a lot about Bob yeah. Dylan. He was our, our guest here. And he had been at the, was it the previous concert? He'd been at the Liverpool. Liverpool, yeah. And he said, Sassy. and I, I asked him again, he said it was the loudest music he'd ever heard by far. And I said, no, are you, is that being, you know, really, was that? And But Dylan had brought over special amplification. Well, I watched that. that not, yeah. I'm sorry, I was just thinking because I watched that old, the Ron Howard Beatles documentary yes. was on Sky Eight the other day and I hadn't seen it. Yeah. yeah, And there's the bit about, and it's the touring of them at is it Shea Stadium, the enormous mm -hmm. stadium yep. when they then quit. And it's, yep. and it's also, yep. I knew that they found the screaming horrible, but actually the way they'd done the audio in it, I was like, God, the screaming's unbearable and terrifying. But then they were saying that they were playing through the PA of the... Of a yeah. baseball. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you, you realised that it was in its kind of infancy... Mm. He bought his but own he speakers. Brought his own, he brought that his own speakers and so amplification, incredible. right? Yeah. yeah. And so that's what Michael Gray was saying. the Beatles were saying. playing on a PA. Yes, exactly. And, got... and he was just saying, it was like, just our ears were killing. You know, it was it was terrifying. Yeah. Well, he didn't say terrifying, but actually that's what I think it was. You know, that that, that this wall of sound. Yeah, but how amazing to think. Yeah. I mean, we're all we're all at the wrong end of this. I mean, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're nostalgic for a bit of the 20th century. But how amazing mm. to come... 15, 20 years past the war, and it, it's not been done before. This is new. This is, yeah, mm. whereas now, blah, 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 we've all been to gigs, we've got our foam earplugs, yeah. But I, just how incredible to be yeah. there at the beginning. And also they felt it was commercial. That's where the corny thing comes from. They thought that Dylan existed outside of the music business, you know. He was but something that's other. ownership. Every, isn't nonsense. it all about, you must have so many guests, and it's, who owns the real... Yeah. I mean, I, I love Joan Byers, and I like... But I have listened to this Diamonds from Rust, obviously one of the greatest songs ever, in my view, and I like that he likes it. But I have listened to For Bobby, which is one of the most insufferable 
and I, I can't. I don't know that one. Do you not know no, it? No, no, oh, no, you look up the lyrics. Where, it's, where is it? Oh, it's, on it's one of her albums. Yeah, and it's 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 about his betrayal, and it's saying that the protest and folk movement. I can't believe I'm telling you something you didn't know. Look up the lyrics because Mike and apparently he hated it, and it's about him betraying. And it's saying, Bobby, we need you. The starving children. Oh, don't make me read. No, no, wait, it's okay. You have to. Yeah, no, no, you can read it. But it is. It's got a bit about the poor and the, the needy children they need Bobby come back we're, we're waiting for you and it's what? about his betrayal that he's gone off and become commercial and doing rock he when, left us when? marching on the road and said how heavy was the load the years were young the struggle barely had its start do you hear the voices in the night Bobby they're crying for you I'm it sounds even worse that. when she's singing Whoa. it saying, do you hear that because she was when, very when did pure she, when did she do this oh. Oh. I got the impression it was a few years into it's the middle ground between Don't Look Back and Diamonds and Rust. Because I, I loved, yeah, Diamonds and Rust, I loved. Yeah. I, it's probably the only Joan Baez album that I, well, that I bought. Yes, I, I was not, never a huge Joan Baez fan, but that one I, I thought, oh, she's incredible. cool. Yeah, and well, it was a song. kind of, I'm sure I read an interview, maybe it was with her, or maybe I saw an interview where she said that Dylan really liked Diamonds and Rust and thought it was one of the best things yeah. written about him. But he really, really hated for Bobby and used to try and avoid it, and it really got his goat. But for it's, Bobby was was 1972, according to the internet. So it's quite a distance after, mm. anyway. But I suppose you get that sense of betrayal of what the folk movement is. It's not just how it sounds; mm. it's what it is. It's you know, and the kind of true believer who's you know, never wavered. You know, good for Joan, kind of. But it's the music is about social conscience, and mm. it's it's indivisible from that. Whereas. The fact that Dylan could just go, now I'm selling albums with the band, yeah. must have been so... Read for Bobby, if you or listen to it, actually, because it's even better with her incredibly pure voice that I adore, but her plaintive cry that he's abandoning the needy. You see, I mean, just the use of the word Bobby in 1972 says to yeah. me that someone hasn't moved on. Christ. He's <laughs> well, stopping Bobby in 1963 or it, two. I well, mean, on Rolling Thunder, she said, you know, Bobby, Bobby, I know, but, he's, but, it, but, but she calls him Bobby. Bobby's that's, the yeah, little Greenwich Village kid. No, you know, but they went no? out. You I always know. call yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, you can't blame her for that, but it does sound kind of naff. But yeah, I, if you're putting it in a song title, though. Yeah, kind of... I'm sure there are people you've known since school who still call you whatever they yeah, said then. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> do you like Neil Young at all? I do. Not I, expertly. Well, no, I just, it reminds me, I was reading about this week about his, his 1973 tour where he, he did a Dylan. You know, he came out and he played a bunch of songs that nobody liked and just said, fuck you to his audience. And, it's, and then afterwards was thinking, why don't they get it? Why can't they see the truth, the heartbreak That's in what like I'm doing? Artists are, I suppose, any really great artist can't hang on, pander to their audience, I suppose. You, that well, way, if they creative keep moving. death. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you have to be. Where's the this? I recently discovered that Neil Young, like more, I didn't know he had a kind of electronicy phase. Yeah, mm -hmm. trans. Yeah, which I just, I, was, I can't remember anyway. I downloaded some of the songs from it recently, which is my current Neil Young yeah. obsession. This is not realizing that he did that and thinking yeah. it's amazing. It was to help his, um, I think, autistic son to speak. He was playing with with a vocoder and things like that. Wow, I didn't In know. Two thousand eighty-two or something. We were talking uh, earlier also about uh, Loudon Wainwright. <laughs> we're both big, uh, big fans. I, I'm a big fan of Loudon Wainwright. Because he's funny. He can move you to... I saw him at the Royal Festival. So did I. Did, that last concert? The, 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 the recent one? The, no. It was postponed like a couple of times. Six years ago or something. Oh, right. Well, he always plays the Royal yeah. Festival Hall, yeah. I've seen him there, like, many times. And uh, he, his new album had just come out. And I thought it was kind of... Okay, I I didn't really uh, okay. grab me, and then he played one of the songs live. It had only like come out the week yeah. before. It was a song about aging. Yeah, it was a song about death. Yeah. You know, like and he's written so many of those. He used to write but, them when he was like twenty five. Yes, exactly. It's over the hill. Exactly. I'd like to hear him sing over the hill again now. Yes, because he sings in two bits, like. But he is a very young man, and then he sings back in perspective as an older man. Yeah. But he's well, singing it as a young man. Yeah. Well, what, what's that? What was that song? in in uh, in college days when I was when I was so younger? All I can think of he's is only like so much he's only twenty two when he's actually yeah. singing. He's he's an old. He's always been an old guy. But anyway, my point was that he did move me to tears on that that song about growing older because there he was, like he's like seventy five or yeah. whatever it is, and and he really is approaching death now, and he's he's still. Hacking away at that same scene. He's so well. But I actually I was introduced to him once by my, yeah? this friend of mine, uh, Paul, and uh, who got us. Uh, we I was going to go see him anyway, and I was going to go see him with Paul this time. And Paul produced this documentary about him 
25 years before, but he was still in touch with him. And so he said, you want to go backstage and meet Loudon? You know, I'll put us on the guest list. And so we did. And uh, he was just exactly what you would sort of imagine. Like he's, he, you know, he went to prep schools, you know, he's East Coast. He seems like, unlike Dylan, he seems like a man who reveals a lot of himself in his songs. In his songs, but not when you meet him backstage. Yeah. He was wearing like a little seersucker jacket and he was, there was like a little line and we were all sort wow. of shook his hand and had, it was like meeting the Queen or something. But he's, but I, I mean, he was I lovely, don't know. but he was very, very polite okay. and not dangerous at all. When Loudon Wainwright's memoir came out, which I bought, I kind of thought, well, this is nice, it's well written. I know all this stuff from your songs, yeah. as opposed to Bob Dylan, <laughs> where, where, you know, you, you don't know anything. And I, I think we were talking before well, the show. It's all there. It's, it's just hidden. It's like oh, if there was a thing. So I'm sure it must all be there. But we were, talk, we were talking about, what were we talking about before we, we, we were going out to take the picture before the, yeah. the, we started recording. And you said something and Luke said, yeah, but was it true? Oh, we were talking about his uh, his watching of Coronation Street because you're yes, a, you yes, because you're a Coronation Street obsessive, and you were saying that d despite what I said in the previous episode, you can binge Coronation Street. You can. I don't know if Bob Dylan at Point Doom has access to the ITV player. I like to think he might, <laughs> because as I discovered. <laughs> that if you go to the ITV player, they've got all the stuff from the mid-90s. and the episodes, So I just became addicted to what I had already seen back in the day. But, but I do quite often think I wonder what Bob thought of that. Yeah. Um, so I just like to believe it's true. So I did a book of photography called West of West, which yes, is about... Yes, I, I wanted to plug that. Well, but Dylan I didn't is it. a part of it, oddly, in that I got the idea for it, this notion that you've got the whole of America and everyone goes west. That's the thing. You cross yeah. and then oh, what do you get? You end up on the coast. But I learned to surf very, very badly. And as you sit in the lineup in Zuma or Santa Monica or Venice, you're looking mm. back at America and you have this real sense that there's nothing behind you but Japan and that <laughs> everything's sort of come and that... But always can there's point the, doom can you, you can't see, see the his dome? house you can see well the guy who taught me to surf did some water irrigation in dylan's garden and went that's for dylan lives up there and so you sit out there just going wow there's america right in front of me all of it and there like a kind of jester you know, in the american pie but he's on top of the point doom he's the only thing sitting up there and you have this real sense that this kind of wizard king is at the furthest point of America, sorry. Well, I do think he, I mean, it genuinely, it's a thrilling thing to be alive at the same time, to think yeah. that I am not, when I did this, it's past now, but when I'm sitting there learning to surf and thinking about this, that turned into a book, what a thrilling thing that it's still the America of Dylan. He's still alive and he's up yeah. there yeah. in his garden with a beautiful water irrigation <laughs> system. Is It Rolling Bob Talking Dylan is recorded in Studio 3 at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Roisin King and produced by Robin Guise. Music is by Sam Hare. Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Well, there's voices in the night trying to be heard. I'm sitting here listening to every mind-polluting word. I know plenty of people put me up for a day or two. Yes, I'm trying to get closer, but I'm still a million miles.